On today's podcast, we will go a little bit longer than usual, as I've invited Mark Reed to join us. Mark is the 28th president at St. Joseph's University here in Philadelphia and has been since July of 2015. Since his arrival, Dr. Reed has prioritized sustaining and expanding academic quality and ensuring the university's financial strength through sound management, collaboration, and a progressive mindset. As president, Dr. Reed is deeply committed to understanding and attending to the experience of students, ensuring a rigorous and reflective education that leads to graduates to fuller personal and professional lives. Dr. Reed chairs the Council of Presidents for the Atlantic 10 Conference and St. Joe's is a member of NCAA Division I without football. I've asked Mark to react to a report from Moody's about their prediction on the financial health of higher education. The interview will immediately follow the Moody's discussion. Talks Public Finance, where we share our insights on key trends and developments affecting the credit markets. I'm Susan Fitzgerald, an Associate Managing Director in the U.S. Higher Education Group, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Patrick McCabe. We'll be discussing the results of Moody's 10th Annual Tuition Survey for four-year colleges and universities. Welcome, Patrick. Happy to be here. Thanks, Susan. So let's cut to the chase. Tell us about the main trends that we're seeing in college and university tuition revenue. Sure. So based on our survey results, we project median net tuition revenue growth of 2.3% for private universities and 1% for public universities in 2020. That's lower than we saw last year, right, Patrick? It is. And lower than it's been in prior years. So continued softening. Um, what's driving that? Yeah, so the change in net tuition revenue uh, is both a function of volume, the number of students attending, as well as the actual amount of tuition revenue received per student. Okay, let's dive into each of those in a little bit more depth. What's happening on the enrollment front? So enrollment at public and private universities is relatively flat. Um, and part of this is due to demographic pressures that we're seeing within the sector. Uh, the number of high school graduates is relatively flat across the country, although there are certain regions that are more impacted by this, this demographic shift. Uh, and what it's causing is more competition for students among public and private universities. We're seeing colleges that are moving beyond their traditional or regional markets to try and recruit new students. Okay. So um, strong competition domestically, and, and we've heard a lot about declines in international students. What, what did the survey show us on that front? So the overall trend of lower international student enrollment does continue, with public universities reporting a greater decline than private universities. And this trend is one that does directly affect net tuition revenue, as these international students are typically higher paying students than domestic students. So speaking of higher paying students, graduate enrollment, professional degrees, those students typically are higher paying as well. What, what are we seeing there? So, so graduate enrollment does appear to be relatively flat. Part of this is due to the strong economy, which is keeping some prospective students in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's on the volume side. Let, let's switch and talk a little bit about what we're seeing in terms of how much students are paying, kind of the whole affordability issue, and that's been in the news a lot lately. What did the survey um, tell us is going to happen for this fiscal year? So at public universities, we expect uh, to see net tuition revenue growth per student um, of roughly 2% in fiscal 2020, 
uh, and that is in part due to pricing constraints uh, that are imposed at the state level, um, typically on in-state undergraduate enrollment. So for example, we've seen recently tuition rate freezes announced in Virginia for public colleges and universities, um, or also in South Carolina, tuition increases for public colleges were limited to uh, only offset increasing pension and benefit expenses. Uh, in both these cases, these states are increasing the amount of appropriations that are given to their public colleges and universities to offset some of these pricing restrictions. Uh, but it is important to keep in mind that from a sector-wide standpoint, the state funding level does remain below pre-2009 recession levels, uh, which does place increasing importance on both net tuition revenue and enrollment trends. Okay. So in the past, we've, we've noticed that there's some divergence in the, the sector. Um, any observations on how the flagship land-grant universities are performing relative to their more regional counterparts? So we do expect to see regional public universities uh, be more impacted by these tuition freezes, um, given that they tend to have a higher proportion of their students um, drawn from, from in-state undergraduate students. Um, as opposed to those larger and flagship universities that you mentioned, which tend to have more of an out-of-state student draw, they tend to have more international students or graduate students, and those groups are not typically subject to the same pricing caps um, that in-state undergraduate students are. Interesting. So um, let's switch gears and talk about private universities. Um, pricing has been an issue for them as well, affordability. W what are some of the trends that we're seeing there? So growth in net tuition revenue uh, has been low at private universities, uh, and part of this is due to increasing financial aid, which we refer to as a rising discount rate. So our survey typically looks at the first-year discount rate because that could be really important. It tends to have an impact over the four years that a student is enrolled in an institution. What's happening with the kind of the first-year discount rate? Sure. So to put it in perspective, the overall median tuition discount rate is nearly 41% among private universities. But nearly one quarter of the survey respondents reported a first-year discount rate over 60% in fall 2019. So this increased tuition discounting is limiting the amount of tuition revenue that these colleges and, un and universities are actually receiving per student. Uh, and so what we have here is a sign as this uh, discount rate continues to increase is a prolonged period where private universities are likely to continue to struggle to consistently grow net tuition revenue. Okay. So just one more question before we wrap up. Are we seeing the same divergence um, among private universities that we talked about for the public university sector? Yes. So we are seeing comprehensive private universities growing net tuition per student at roughly 3.2%. And these comprehensive private universities are typically larger institutions with more diverse programmatic offerings, uh, tend to have more research activity, or even national brands, uh, as opposed to smaller private universities um, who we expect to see grow net tuition revenue per student at roughly 1% in 2020. And these institutions tend to be smaller with a more regional focus. So yes, there certainly, certainly is that difference there between comprehensive private universities and smaller private universities. Okay. Really interesting uh, trends. Thank you for sharing those with us, Patrick. Um, it's going to also be interesting to see how the sector adapts to this kind of prolonged period of low net tuition revenue growth. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and please join us next time on Moody's Talks.
today by Dr. Mark Reed, president at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. And Mark, you and I just had a chance to listen to the podcast from Moody's 10th annual tuition survey. And I'd like, like to hear your initial reactions to some of their predictions. Well, the, the predictions are not uh, a surprise to me. Um, in fact, I think we've been hearing those of us who've been intimately involved leading or working in institutions for the last 10 years have been hearing similar things for a long time. But I do think that um, the, the, the wider public, the broader public, if you will, is certainly uh, becoming more uh, aware of kind of what we've known about for a while. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I think it, when you listen to these kinds of trends, it can be um, daunting and scary uh, for some. But I think it's also important to keep the perspective that you know universities have been around a long time. We we, we serve a variety of uh, purposes and public and really uh, serve the public good, and so. Um, we have weathered tough times before, and I'm confident that the sector will be able to weather tough times as well. Uh, but there's no doubt um, there are several institutions uh, under stress, and the ones that are able to respond proactively to that um, will fare the best. But in some cases, there just may be headwinds in a particular area that no matter what an institution does, it may just continue to be a struggle. Yeah, it does sound like it's going to be a struggle, not just for small schools, but also for large schools who don't diversify their offerings and, and really create a value proposition, if you will, right. for uh, parents and students. We know that athletics plays a role on, on college campuses. Uh, St. Joe's is a Division One institution. Talk a little bit about how um, the, the resource, resource allocation for athletics is impacted by these trends that are coming from the financial sector. Sure. Well, you know, within Division One, I, I, think, uh, I think it's generally known uh, that there is a group of schools that belong to a set of conferences that have an entirely different revenue base than the majority of Division One. Uh, at St. Joe's, we're fortunate to be in a conference that has a significant revenue base that comes in and we benefit from. But uh, so we're uh, we're better than most of the conferences in Division One, but we obviously would not be uh, as fortunate as uh, some of those other Power uh, Five conferences or uh, the like. Um, and so, as a tuition-dependent institution, uh, that creates a lot of pressure, yeah. a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so. Whereas some of the schools that we compete with, both for undergraduate or graduate students, or uh, we compete with athletically, you know, will have a far greater percentage of their budget covered, for example, from media rights deals and other things like that, uh, as opposed to us. And it just, it just, it makes it hard. Yeah. It makes it hard. Um, at the same time, we're competing against a set of schools in our own conference, and we're in a similar boat as they are. Uh, and that was, so we have to you know, not allow ourselves to kind of throw up our hands and say, well, you know, how can we compete otherwise? We, uh, the good thing about the NCAA structure is you compete within your conference and you do well within that conference, it leads to postseason opportunities and that's what we focus on. Right, and those opportunities in the postseason oftentimes create revenue that comes Ab back to the conference. Absolutely, uh, absolutely it does. And you know, the, the one of, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of information perhaps about how college sports works in Division One and the NCAA, which would surprise a lot of people because obviously the NCAA receives a lot of money on an annual basis from the men's basketball 
uh, championship largely as a result of the, of the television broadcast. Um, and that is significant, and it pays for, in essence, the rest of the NCA operation. Uh, and there are a lot of other revenues, though, that flow in and around college sports that never make their way to the NCAA level, uh, and therefore are really tightly controlled and held by a small group of schools that makes that um, uh, divide even greater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit about how athletics fits into the larger strategic institutional plan. And what role does it play here at St. St. Joe's? Sure. Well, in our strategic plan, it is mentioned explicitly. And um, that is not something that is controversial on our campus. Um, uh, I think it's widely recognized that the, the positive impact uh, that sports uh, can have on not only uh, you know, the, the, the spirit of campus and on student life, but also in terms of uh, the institutional reputation. And so when we developed our strategic plan, it was, um, it was easy for us to say this, this is important and it matters. It's not the first thing in our strategic plan, nor should it ever be the first thing in our strategic plan as a university, but it is explicitly there. And we subscribe to the view, I certainly do. I had another president uh, who I admired many years ago. I heard him say this. He said, look, if you're gonna have a program, you have to be in it to win, and you have to be in it for the best experience possible for the student athletes. And that's really our, our approach. Uh, but I will say this, you know, there are a few things, um, if any, for an institution, for a lot of institutions that have the potential to draw national attention uh, in a positive way, could also, I suppose, do it in a negative way. But we focus on the positive, on the po in a positive way um, than um, than sports can at times. And uh, you know, we we like to tap into the best of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Staying on the sports theme, um, you are now the co-chair or the chair of the Council of Presidents for the Atlantic 10. Correct. What does that mean for a non-sports fan to understand what the role of the presidents is in running an athletic conference? Sure, well, um, we are in essence the board of directors. We're the fiduciaries of the Atlantic 10 conference. So uh, the 14 presidents in the Atlantic 10, that's our role. Um, and and so I, I have the, uh, uh, the privilege and the honor of serving as the chair currently of the council. But we run, we run our conference and we hire, uh, like any organization, you, you, you need to hire good talent to run it and manage it and we have done that. Uh, I can certainly take no credit for our current commissioner. She was in place before I arrived, but uh, you know she's one of the best, I think, uh, out there in Division One, and I'm, I enjoy working with her. Um, and so, you know, we appropriately make decisions as presidents, not about the routine day-to-day -day business of the conference, but uh, the strategic issues. Uh, and I'll give you an example. A few years ago, um, as changes were happening in the Division One governance structure, and uh, the model evolved from kind of a one school, one vote to uh, another model that um, you know had at least uh, theoretically full participation by all the conferences in the governance matters to a one where certain schools were going to basically have permanent seats and other school or excuse me certain conferences would have permanent seats and other conferences would have rotating seats. You know we we made the strategic decision that the Atlantic Ten needed to uh, articulate why as a basketball centric conference. Uh, we deserved uh, consideration for a, uh, a more permanent uh, seat at the table at the governance level. And so those are the kinds of things that presidents can do, really strategic issues, challenging the conference, challenging our thinking, raising uh, uh, the bar and the expectation. Uh, so it's all the things that um, a, a good board of directors would do is what we as presidents um, uh, should, 
should do as well. I will say that conference membership is very important strategically to not only St. Joe's, but to all members of the Atlantic 10, mm. that this isn't uh, you know, something that maybe 30, 40 years ago, maybe 20 years ago even was kind of, well, you know, geographically we were aligned, so let's get together and we'll play our sports programs. This is much more now. We're, we're, we're bound together in ways that um, perhaps weren't originally envisioned when conferences came into existence, um, but now we have to make sure as a conference we're all uh, kind of rowing our boats in the same general direction. Right, right. And you and you acknowledge that there has been conference upheaval over the last uh, decade or so, uh, not just at the Division One level, but even at the Division Three level. Right. So if a school approached the Atlantic 10 and said, hey, we'd like to join, what's some of the criteria you would look at for them to, to join you? Sure. Um, well, First and foremost, there has to be some sort of basic uh, uh, synergy and alignment of institutional mission with the conference. So, um, you know, where does the where does the school stand in terms of its uh, its academic profile and its academic uh, mission, uh, and then as well what its athletic goals are and and what have you. And um, the Atlantic Ten uh, has been fortunate that when it has had changes in its membership. Um, and, and you never, you know, fault an institution that may be looking to do something that um, improves their institutional uh, goals. But we've been able to attract members that, in essence, enhance the profile of the Atlantic 10, um, if you will, kind of immediately bring in schools that compete near the top, uh, certainly no lower than the middle of the conference, as opposed to kind of bringing somebody in on a hope and a promise that, if we're in, then we'll be able to make uh, inroads and investments going forward. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't institutions for whom the opportunity to be in the Atlantic 10 would be the catalyst for them to, to be able to um, kind of unleash potential. But uh, really the, the question has to be, how does a, a, a prospective member uh, enhance the Atlantic 10 as opposed to what the membership of the Atlantic 10 alone does for that institution? And for those who don't understand the difference between a football-centric conference and a basketball-centric conference, can you give us a couple of examples of how they're different? Sure. Well, I've never been part of a football-centric conference, so uh, with that qualifier, though, I, I can certainly uh, do my best to answer your question. And in in, in my understanding that the issues involving football, um, both in terms of size, scope, reach impact as well as the finances are so much more significant than any other sport that in essence it if a conference is going to sponsor football that is going to be the top thing that is going to drive a lot of decision making even for conferences that have incredibly rich and successful basketball programs within them as a basketball centric con uh, conference we don't have you know perhaps a negative way of looking at it we, we don't have the distraction if you will sometimes that football can bring um, but I don't mean it to be negative but for us it's uh, it's all about um, enhancing the, um, the basketball profile of the conference so all of the decisions that we make um, are really geared towards uh, towards that basketball centric conferences though um, are faced with the obvious challenge of not having as much inventory, as much content, if you will, to sell uh, or to to, um, to be attractive to um, you know television partners and media rights partners, um, and so you you have that challenge. So the success of the basketball program is even that much more important because um, 
you know, if football is going well and basketball isn't quite doing as well, uh, that's not going to harm a conference the same way that for a basketball-centric conference, you just dip a little bit, it can be viewed in a negative light. Absolutely. Well, taking that idea and then applying it back to St. Joe's, how does athletics play a role in your marketing, enrollment, and retention strategy on campus? Well, for, for us, you know, we're a medium-sized university with uh, you know, roughly 8,000 students overall. We're a little bit below that now between undergraduate and graduate students. Um, and so, you know, we're not small. But at the undergraduate level, you know, we have about 4,500 uh, undergraduate students, and that can have and flow. It's been as high as uh, 4,700 roughly in the, in the last couple of years. We have about 500 varsity student-athletes. So as a percentage of students, it's high, much higher, for example, than you would find in a large public or private university um, where, that are going to have more students. And so it's integral to the experience. Um, in, in many respects, even though we're not a small institution, it's not unlike Division Three, where you have, um, in many cases, but not in all cases, but I can think certainly of some of the elite athletics programs in Division Three, these smaller liberal arts colleges, where uh, an even higher percentage of their students are playing sports. Yeah. Um, and so I just offer that, it, it, it's core to what we do and think about as an institution. So obviously it has enrollment, retention, and marketing impacts. We also have 20 varsity programs versus the NCAA uh, minimum of 14. Uh, that sometimes surprises people. They would think, you know, the larger, you know, bigger the institution, they would just automatically have more sports programs. And, and in fact, there are plenty of examples of large flagship institutions that have fewer varsity sports programs than, um, than a school like uh, St. Joe's does. I would also say the prospective students may not be directly attracted to St. Joe's because of athletics. Some are, but not necessarily all are. Um, but I do believe all students are attracted indirectly due to certain campus life qualities that athletics provides. Spirit, community, sense of pride, energy, all of those things. Uh, recruited student athletes yield well, and they should. I mean, sometimes athletics will say, well, you know, the yield, if you, uh, if you will, on a recruited student athlete out is higher than the yield on a general student. And that is true, and I argue it should be, <laughs> okay, given um, the, the, the way the recruiting process works and, uh, and, and the, you know, the inclination to attend for a recruited student athlete. You know a lot more about that person before you make that offer, uh, but that's important. And I think, you know, a big question is without athletics, would the school be able to enroll, you know, the same number of students? Um, that's not to say that the only reason athletes are coming to St. Joe's or to another institution is because of the sport program that they're going to play. But obviously, if they have the talent, they have the skill uh, level, they have the inclination, they have the opportunity. If it's not offered here, they just might go find it somewhere else. And to just say, well, there'll be somebody else, you know, who would come anyway, um, you know, is, is it is an interesting hypothesis that I'm not sure I would be willing to test. Right. So it, it's, a, it's a big piece of what we are. Um, and I would just say, you know, whether you're St. Joe's, whether you're a, a large football school, uh, or you're s much smaller or anything in between, athletics from a marketing standpoint is a galvanizer. And alumni and others uh, develop a sense of pride through the performance, the success, if you will, the fight, the love for uh, their alma mater, and athletics plays a big part in that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I also would just 
uh, end with this statement. You know, at athletics, college athletics is a distinctly American phenomenon. <laughs> you know, and so there's a certain like a lot of things with America. What makes America unique and kind of uh, envied in the world is kind of the uh, the passion and the size and the scale and the scope with which we do things. It comes with some challenges, yeah. but. Uh, the benefits are also real. Yeah. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's hard to miss the arms race that's going on in Division One athletics to build bigger, better facilities, to pay coaches more, to hire more assistant coaches and strength coaches and mental coaches and all these kinds of things. How do you manage that in your environment with everything else that we've talked about? Yeah, well, it's a challenge. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, I sometimes, on a, just on a very simple level, you know, I've said to coaches, I've said to other administrators at times who want to, you know, have more staff or build things bigger and what have you, I said, you know, be careful what you wish for sometimes. The more you add doesn't necessarily mean you get the same one-to-one -one incremental benefit. You know, sometimes it can be uh, over-analysis, analysis paralysis. Uh, it can be, uh, you know, if you're a head coach and you, you know, used to have two assistants and now you have four assistants and a graduate assistant and whatever, that, you have more people to manage and then it becomes kind of like a snowball going down a, a hill and, and it gets bigger and bigger and at some point you can't stop it. Um, I, I think athletics reflects though things that are happening elsewhere in our country and also in higher education. I mean, there was... I've been doing this for close to 20 years, and uh, the, the I would you know say that health and wellness and counseling and psychological services have always had a place on our campuses and have always been important. But you know I think about you know the need and the change and the evolution for those kinds of services uh, has grown tremendously. You know I've watched where the majority of advising on campuses were done by the full-time faculty, and now there are teams of uh, professional advisors, if you will, doing that. And, uh, and you also have kind of that, that sort of awkward reality in, in, in higher education sometimes um, where, you know, the more prestigious the institution is, the faculty teach less. That's not a statement about the faculty. It's just, it's just a reality of, of, of kind of our sector. So I think athletics reflects that. I think it's important to keep that in perspective, and it's just how to, how to balance uh, all of that. I will say this, uh, though, in conclusion to this question. Um, I have come to deeply appreciate the time commitment that athletes and the ones that I've observed are Division One athletes, but I suspect this is true in all sectors, the amount of time they spend on their sport. And I don't mean in the official practices and all that, just the training, what have you. And so when you, when you analyze where athletes spend their time physically, where they are, um, I think you have to look at the facilities and the support and the strength and training and the locker rooms and all that through that lens. And, you know, for our students, we want to make sure the classrooms are the right and the best that they can be. Well, for student athletes, one of their classrooms is the practice facility that they work in, the place where they, the lab that they go to practice, where they go to, to apply what they've learned. I mean, so from that standpoint, I think we need to think of it that way. Um, and I, I've actually come to the conclusion sometimes that, you know, um, competition venues are very, very important. Um, but I've learned talking to student athletes and to some coaches that the competition venue, uh, if they were to rank their priorities of what their needs are uh, and what would be the most impact, competition venue sometimes is lower on their list 
Uh, now, in many cases, it's, it's shared with practice, so I get that. But uh, it, it often comes down to strength, nutrition, academic support, um, and, uh, and and training facilities. So that's how we balance it. And at the end of the day, we got to make choices. Absolutely. And you, you're observation about this where athletes spend most of their time is is well served because if you're practicing six days a week probably five four or five of those days are in practice and the other days in, in the game environment so why not emphasize that experience over over others that makes sense so you talked early on about fiduciary responsibilities that you had in the conference your board of trustees here at st joseph's has a res fiduciary responsibility for oversight with you in intercollegiate athletics. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with them on that responsibility? Sure. Um, well, you know, first and foremost, and the NCAA has, has made it very, very clear that I as president am accountable for uh, what happens in our athletics program, both positive and negative. And the athletics director is directly accountable to me in that particular regard, and I to the board. Um, and the Association of Governing Boards, the AGB, I think has put together uh, over the years a variety of good resources yeah. that, that talk about this. Now, <laughs> like any organization, you're trying to provide guidelines that are applicable to uh, a very, very diverse set of institutions, uh, some institutions, public institutions, which are governed by very specific state laws about you know, um, open records and other kinds of things yeah. to private universities, which you know, uh, essentially make their own their own policy decisions, if you will. Um, but one thing the AGB is very, very clear about is kind of drawing the line between governance and oversight and management. And so um, the board, in my view, has every right and every uh, expectation to receive from me and from the athletic director current, accurate, complete, and transparent information about the state of affairs in athletics. What do we spend? Uh, what are the graduation rates? What are the, um, uh, how does the recruiting process work? What, is, what are the compliance uh, control mechanisms in place? All of those kinds of things. Um, how, you know, what criteria do we use to, uh, you know, evaluate coaches or to evaluate programs? But where that stops is when you actually then are gonna make a decision about personnel. And personnel, I'd also so mean coaches, but, you know, who's gonna be recruited? Who's going to play? Who's going to do those things? There's no role for uh, a governing board, in, in, in my view, and I think the AGB supports this and best practice does as well, uh, for that level of um, that level of, of, of board involvement or engagement. Um, I would also say, you know, from my perspective, um, trustees uh, have a have a particular interest in lots of things happening on a university campus, and not everything, you know, can be of of equal interest or, or equal attention, because otherwise, you know, how would everybody get anything done? But when we, for example, were hiring a new athletic director, the way that I engage trustees in that process is um, there, we form a search advisory committee and trustees are not on it. We take the view that trustees really serve on one search committee, which is that of the president. Um, however, as we move forward in that process and when we got down to uh, finalist stage, you know, I ask a small number of trustees, would you meet these candidates and offer your perspective to me um, and your advice and your candor? And we do that in a very private and and uh, and, and open and transparent way. 
uh, in addition to helping me, it helps the candidate to get a sense of the institution and, 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 to, and to sell the candidates on, on, on coming to St. Joe's. So I think there is a role and there is a way to engage trustees in important strategic decisions at the institution around athletics. I just think we have to be thoughtful about it um, and just kind of avoid, uh, you know, kind of the more common pitfalls um, that, uh, that, others, that others offer. Um, that's that's how, I, how I look at it. In closing, you all did something this fall that I thought was really remarkable. You came out early and made a stance about gambling on campus. And with the legalization of gambling in Pennsylvania and other states, tell us a little bit about the, how that idea came to fruition. Sure. Well, uh, our, our athletics director, Jill Bodensteiner, um, has been called upon in a variety of settings within the NCAA formally or, or kind of on an ad hoc basis. Uh, to participate in a variety of uh, discussions and uh, and sort of groups that will advance policies and and um, on this one she came to me and said you know this issue's out there uh, we happen to be in a state the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that was going to say you know it's it's going to be legal so uh, you know be be ready and go for it and she said we really have to have some sort of policy around this and. Um, so she, along with others on campus, got together and, um, and decided that we should be an institution that should um, not permit our community members, students, faculty, staff, trustees included because of their fiduciary role and their oversight role. We should not be in a position where any member of the St. Joe's community, the family, if you will, is wagering on St. Joe's athletics. Um, and. I was not surprised, given our mission and kind of consistent with our culture, that that was not a controversial or a difficult conclusion to reach. Mm -hmm. um, I do know there are other institutions that, uh, you know, put in uh, perhaps ahead of us or, or not, a, not long after us kind of similar policies. So we don't proclaim to have somehow figured something out <laughs> uh, that others uh, haven't been thinking about, haven't been talking about as well. But I would say, based on my read or my understanding of, of, of kind of our actions, maybe perhaps in comparison to some others, is that ours is really an institutional policy, and uh, and we we feel strongly like that. We we don't want to be the type of community where someone is betting on the success or the failure right. of another member of the community. It's yeah. it's pressure filled enough, and uh, that just didn't feel right to yeah. us. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking uh, some time out of your very hectic schedule to talk with us about boards, trustees, presidents, and, and oversight mechanisms in athletics. Appreciate it. Thank you, Karen. I've enjoyed it. Excellent.